We thank you, Lord, because you are a great God. Father, we want to thank you because your love is so unsearchable. Father, you loved us even when we didn't know ourselves. And Father, even now you have prepared our sister Anne to come and express that love, even to share what you have put in our hearts. I pray for great anointing upon her. I pray that she will be able to release all that you have given her. We pray for supernatural ability. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will help her. We pray that your angels will encamp around her, that she will be able to deliver all that, Lord, she is supposed to tell us. We bless her in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. It's a real privilege to stand here. Quite a very scary one. <laughs> I can't know where to put that. I don't know about you, but sometimes God surprises me. In preparing for this message, I prayed and I asked God for the topic. And he said, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I was surprised and a little confused. And I must admit, in fact, if I'm really honest, I raised a few objections. But as you will see, I lost. I have been in church for many years and I don't ever remember hearing a message based solely on Mary. She always appears as part of the Christmas story or as part of the story of the wedding at Cana. So I was unsure how to tackle this. So I decided to give an overview of her life as a starting place, taking into consideration the customs and the culture at the time. So this is the world that Mary grew up in. She grew up in Nazareth, an agricultural area with approximately 1,900 inhabitants. Assuming a reserved estimate of five people per household, that would have been about 380 houses. One road in Perryvale has more houses than that, so by our standards, it was very small. Houses were built in family compounds and usually had one or two rooms, one of which was sometimes shared with animals. From an early age, Mary would have helped her mum around the house with chores, washing, cooking, fetching water, etc. It wasn't a very glamorous life, but it would have made her strong and hardy. Water is heavy to carry, as anyone who has carried it will know. She would not have been able to read. No girls did. She would have grown up learning to recite the Torah by heart and would have been well aware of the prophecies about the Messiah. She would also have known that she would have an arranged marriage at an appropriate age, which at that time was around 12 onwards. That's young. She would be betrothed and married six months to a year later. 
A betrothal was legally binding, and the only way out was a divorce. Men married once they were financially stable enough to build a home for themselves on the family compound, and were, as a result, often much older than their wives. According to tradition, Mary would take a dowry with her and go and live with her husband's family. In return, the father of the bride would be paid a bride price as compensation for the loss of a worker in his house. I found that slightly amusing. I think that tells us a lot about a woman's lot at that time. Remember, Mary would only have been about 12 or 13. And now let's look at the responsibility given to Mary at just that age. After being betrothed to Joseph, Mary has a message from God. It's a story we all know really well. The angel Gabriel says to Mary, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. The angel also explains that he will be called the Son of the Most High, who will sit on the throne of his father David and will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How did Mary feel? Afraid? Definitely? Amazed? Confused? It says Mary was troubled by his words and wondered what such a greeting meant. I bet she did. Mary is confused and says, how can this be as I am a virgin? The angel says the child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to tell Mary about her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy. Significantly, he reminds Mary that nothing is impossible for God. Mary's response is simple, but extraordinary. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left. Let's just take a moment to remember what we were like at 12 or 13 years of age. What would your response have been? I'm not sure that would have been mine. I've written here, this must have been a terrifying prospect for Mary but only because I know I would have been terrified. And yet she finds the courage to say, Lord, your will. The punishment for adultery is stoning, is death by stoning. Betrothal carried the same weight as marriage. She would have known of other girls who had had a child outside marriage, who had been cast out by their family and society and ultimately being forced into a life of prostitution as the only way to survive. And yet, she said yes, Mary was willingly obedient. No wonder God favoured her, but where did her courage come from? Mary really trusted God. She didn't grow up only doing chores, She knew the Torah. She knew her God. She recognised the angel as a messenger from God. She knew the messianic prophecies. 
And the angel assured her that nothing is impossible for God. She took a leap of faith and said, Okay, Lord. Mary very quickly decides to go and visit her cousin, Elizabeth. I suspect she wanted to check out the news about Elizabeth being pregnant because that would confirm what the angel had told her and maybe she was seeking comfort and support. When Elizabeth saw Mary, Elizabeth said that the child within her leapt for joy. Elizabeth knew there was something special about the baby Mary was carrying and that would have been confirming for Mary. Mary then says what we've come to know as the Magnificat, a song of praise where she famously declares, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he is mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary is now sure of what God is doing and gives thanks to him. She trusts God to make things right. One of the best ways to build our faith is to remember and thank God for the things that he has done in our lives so far. It helps us to remember what God can do. Mary does this by reciting the Magnificat. There is a suggestion that this is based on Hannah's song when she left Samuel at the temple. Scripture can really help us in our hour of need. Joseph must have been devastated when he found out that Mary was expecting a baby, but he was a righteous and a kind man, and he decided to divorce her quietly. He did not want to risk her being disgraced. God is in control. He sends an angel to Joseph who tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife as his wife because the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so they are married. But life doesn't run smoothly for them. Due to a census, they have to go to Bethlehem at just the point Mary is due to give birth. Those of us who have had children will know how uncomfortable those last two to three weeks are before giving birth. But just at that time, Mary had to make a journey, a four to five day journey, about 90 miles, to Joseph's ancestor's birthplace. And at the end of the journey, as we all know, she gives birth in a stable. 13, maybe 14, Mary gave birth with no family to support her and no pain relief. That takes great courage and fortitude. At this point, I suspect Mary is clinging to her promise from God because the circumstances have all gone wrong. She was wondering where God, or maybe she was wondering where God was in all of this. We don't really know. So what does God do? He sends some shepherds to confirm that all is according to plan. This is, of course, my interpretation. (laughs) Then, as is custom, Mary and Joseph take their young son to the temple in Jerusalem to be presented to the Lord. And again, God provides confirmation for Mary. She is met by Simeon, who says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, 
according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He then goes on to speak of the great things Jesus will do, but warns Mary that her heart will be pierced. And Mary marvels, Mary and Joseph marvel at these things. And then Anna, a prophetess of 84, comes into the temple and recognises the significance of this baby and tells all around her, all these words must have been significant to Mary and Joseph as they brought up their young child. Then, of course, they have a visit from the Magi who brought gifts, which must have been very useful for the next stage of their lives, of their journey, because they had to flee to Egypt for a time. God provided gold, frankincense and myrrh and another injection of encouragement and confirmation. The next we hear of the family is when they've gone to Jerusalem for a feast of the Passover, when Jesus is 12 years old. The family group start their return journey, and after a day, Mary and Joseph realise Jesus is not amongst them, and head back to Jerusalem. After three days of searching, they find him in the temple court, sitting amongst the teachers, listening and asking questions. All were amazed at his understanding, but Mary says, we've been searching anxiously for you. Why were you searching for me? asks Jesus. Did you not know I would be in my father's house? But they did not really understand what he was saying to them. I find this interesting because it shows us that Jesus had a lot of freedom within the family company, that he often hung out with other family members or members of the village and that he was trusted to just follow along. It says a lot about the wider family dynamic. We also learn here that Jesus already knew who he was, but Mary and Joseph still did not understand God's plan. But they still went along with it. We next hear of Mary at the wedding in Cana, where the wine runs out, and Mary tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And we all know the story, and that jars of water were filled, and Jesus turned the water into great tasting wine. Mary did not know who Jesus was, or his destiny, but she recognised how special he is. Next we read of Mary, is at the cross, when Jesus is crucified. What bravery to stand and watch your much-loved son suffer in such a way sharpened undoubtedly by the knowledge of his innocence and kind heart. I wonder if she pondered the words of Simeon at that time. The last time Mary is mentioned is in Acts 1.14, and it reads, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. She was faithful to the end. At Pentecost, Mary must have finally understood God's plan for her son, 33 years after giving birth. She was willingly obedient. She was a lovely, God-fearing, loving mum to Jesus. We know that because God chose her for the task. I have often pondered the strangeness of Mary, being considered favoured and blessed 
when she gave birth in a stable, had to flee to Egypt, and later watched her son die a painful, unjust death. It was a great honour for Mary, but not without sacrifice. She was, of course, truly blessed, because she had 33 years of close contact with Jesus. She nursed him, held him on her knee, wiped away his tears when he fell, taught him the Torah, taught him to pray, showed him a life of faith, and bore his sufferings with him. She was truly blessed, but it was not a life without difficulties and pain. What a remarkable woman. What a remarkable life lived according to the plan of the God Mary loved. So we see that God told Mary the plan. He sent confirmation along the way to encourage her. He made the impossible possible. He provided for all the family's needs and he blessed Mary and the family abundantly. I got to this point in preparing the message and had no idea where to go next with it. So I asked, what now, Lord? And he said, don't forget about the obedience. Ouch. I don't know about you, but this is not a word I like to hear. So the main thrust of this message is the blessings of obedience. And there are undoubted blessings. Look at Mary, a life lived in close proximity to the saviour of the world. I pondered why God wanted me to build this message based on the life of Mary. And then I understood. Obedience isn't an easy subject. Well, not for me anyway. But God wants to lead us forward gently inspiring us to choose a closer walk with him and does not, under any circumstances, want any of us to feel condemnation, for there is no condemnation in Christ. Obedience isn't a fashionable word these days. Whatever word you choose, the meaning is the same. There are things we should and shouldn't do as Christians. So, what are those things? Well, it's all in the Word of God, so we have to read the Bible to know God's will. Here are some of the don'ts. Don't have idols or other gods. Don't commit murder. Don't envy your neighbour. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal, don't be judgmental, don't lose your self-control, and so on. There are quite a few don'ts, and I think most of us know them. It isn't always easy to keep to these, and the devil knows, and preys on our weaknesses. But God did not leave us alone to, this, to battle this. He sent the Holy Spirit to help us and enable us to overcome our weaknesses and temptations. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted, tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. We are not alone in this challenge. 
We only have to be willing and the Holy Spirit will work with us to transform us. The blessing of being willingly obedient is a closer walk with God. But I think even more challenging than the don'ts are the do's. Do love your enemy. Do forgive as you have been forgiven. Do bear the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control, kindness, goodness and faithfulness. Do love one another as Jesus loves us. Do love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. In John 3:11, we read, The man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. This is hard to contextualise, so we do need to pray for wisdom. Many years ago, one of my sons went on a school trip and took with him a large, rather nice towel. When he returned home, he only had half of it. I asked him about this, and he told me his friend had forgotten his towel. So he cut his in half, so they each had a half. I'm not quite sure that's what the passage meant, <laughs> but I couldn't say anything other to him than, that was kind of you. I think maybe it's easier to see the world in a more simplistic way when you are young. As we get older, the weight of the troubles of the world can make small gestures seem a drop in the ocean. But even a drop causes a ripple. Another big one, do treat others in the way that you would like them to treat you. You might think, what, all day? Every day, even when I'm having a bad day, or I'm stressed, or I'm tired. Well, yes, that is what it says. Let's just take a moment here to imagine what the world would be like if everyone lived this reality. No one would get hurt or offended, and if offence was taking, taken from an unwitting error, forgiveness would be swift. Everyone would look out for everyone else, and where there was a need, it would be met. No one would be lonely, or in need, or hungry. There would be loving suggestions instead of complaints, and we would all be filled with peace and joy. We can't change the world, but we can live this reality in church and in our families, and try to spread it around us in our communities. I realise that I cannot feed the world alone, but I can try to meet the needs of those around me. Mother Teresa said, if you cannot feed a hundred people, then feed one. So let's pray for wisdom in this respect. Reading from verse 34, this is the passage of the goats and the sheep, and it always stops me in my tracks. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, 
Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did also for me. It's well worth reading through the whole parable of the sheep and the goats. It's very challenging and food for thought. This parable really pricks the conscience, but equally... We cannot be all things to all people. So we need wisdom to know who God would have us help. Then, of course, there is the Great Commission, as laid out in Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Some churches have simplified this to the praying of a prayer, asking God into a person's life. But our aim should not simply be to get people to pray a prayer. It says, make disciples. Making disciples requires the gifts, skills, love and willingness of church members to take themselves out of their comfort zone. Every part of church involvement is, in a way, part of the discipling process, whether it is seen, unseen, at the front, wherever. Even coming to church is part of our discipling journey. In a way, we disciple each other or build one another up when we meet. Getting to know God is a journey that continues throughout our whole lives. I can remember when I first came to this church, there was one particular person who talked to me whenever I came. I won't mention that person because I don't want to embarrass them, but that person always made a point of coming to talk to me, and that made a massive difference to how welcome I felt. That was a sort of discipleship. Do we want to be comfortable Christians or those who walk the extra mile? But don't feel downhearted. We are not alone. We have the Holy Spirit as our helper and enabler and the blessing for allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us is a greater closeness with God and a more fulfilled life. When I came to this church about 18 months ago, I found a wounded church. I didn't know what had happened, and I didn't want to know. On about my third visit, I heard God say to me, I have seen their faithfulness. 
I have seen their faithfulness. God loves to work with a faithful remnant. I believed then, and I still do, that God has his hand on this church and he has a plan for this church. I believe God has a plan for each person who attends the church and I believe he desires to use the faith, prayers, help, involvement, gifts, skills of everyone here to fulfil that plan. I believe God wants to birth something new in each of us. Maybe it's a gift, maybe it's developing a skill, maybe it is a plan, I don't know. And that is for each to seek God for him or herself. Because in so doing, you will be starting your closer walk with God. Will we say, like Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. Everyone here has a part to play in the building of Christ's body, the church. I hope this makes you excited, because it should. Let's be willing servants for the glory of God. Paul was very kind to me and gave me plenty of time to prepare for today's message. So this message was written three to four weeks ago, with a little bit of tweaking here and there. So I have listened carefully to the messages of the last few weeks, in case this was totally out of sync. But a couple of weeks ago, Michael gave us an image from God about Jesus carrying us like eggs in a basket to Jerusalem, the crucifixion. And last week, Paul's message was about being clothed in Christ. There is no doubt in my mind that God is at work in this place. God is calling us. 1 Peter 15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all. So be holy in all you do. No. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Will you respond like Mary and say, Let it be as you say. To me, it feels like God is standing before us with his arms open wide, saying, Come, my daughter. Come, my son. Seek me out. I'm waiting for you. God bless you all. Amen.